to 38. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken." And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, 
lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful Sunday where we can gather in your name as a body of believers. Open our hearts to these words, the words of warning, the words of what are to come, the words to to watch out and be aware. Let us drop our defenses that we put up as humans and seek you fully, put our eyes on you. Bless Pastor Grant as he has prepared the words to teach to us, and let us all just um, grow in our maturity and be ready for the times ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Man, what a beautiful prayer. Thank you very much, Carol. Sometimes when it's your turn to read scripture, you got a lot of scripture to read. I appreciate it. And you know, I really do think, man, it might be it might be one of the most important things that we ever do. And just I, every time scripture is being read from this pulpit, I just go, man, we got to have the public reading of scripture. That is an incredible gift. Well, we've been traveling, following Jesus really for almost three years now, off and on in Luke. And, and uh, starting at the first of the year, we really took up this last week of Jesus' life. And, and we've heard him um, you know, debate with Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, whoever was there to argue with. We've, heard, we've seen him come into town uh, presenting himself as the king in the triumphal entry. And there's this moment... Next week, we're going to start really feeling like Good Friday and Easter stuff. Next week, if you just kind of flip, you go, okay, the ESV titles, chapter 22, the plot to kill Jesus. So we've had all of this ministry during the week, the last week of his life, and then we have all of the stuff that's really familiar and really this narrative of how Jesus ends up at the cross, and then right in the middle, we have this this very unique in Jesus' preaching life passage of Scripture that, that is in all three, some, one form or another, is in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that we call the Olivet Discourse. And this is a, a, brand, a, a different kind of, of Scripture reading, and we'll talk about that as we go. But before we do, I do want to tell you what it's like to prepare high school students for an exam. So here's how it goes. I teach a couple of classes and have for like eight or nine years. So this is not something that has happened once. This is something that has and will happen in perpetuity until uh, I die. Um, Is I say something like, now I don't want Bible class to wreck anybody's GPA. I'm not trying to trick anybody. I'm only qualified to teach the Bible. If they need help with math, I'm going to pray for them. but um, uh, so I'll say something like, hey, in a week or two, we're going to have a big, uh, a big, you know, test. 
And you can bring as many note cards to that test as you want. I don't care if you write the Star Spangled Banner on them. I don't care what. You can write as many notes. I am going to lecture for the next two weeks. There will be slides on the PowerPoint that I carefully put together eight years ago. And um, there, I'm going to tell you everything. You, if you will just write on the note cards the things that I go, that's going to that's gonna be important. Write that down then you will be fully prepared for the test that's coming up. And somebody will raise a hand. They'll go, what day is it going to be? I'll go, I'm not really sure. Like, I, I don't know how prepared you think I look, but I am much less prepared than you think. So I don't know how long it'll take us to get through the information. A week or two. You know, it's coming. Trust me, it's coming up. There is going to be a test. I promise. They make me put grades in the grade book, so I have to do it. We're doing it. And, and so somebody else will raise, I'm going to be out next Thursday. Okay, I don't. That's a you problem. That's not a me problem. I don't know. I don't know. I'll try to make it not to do whatever. But, and somebody will go, well, what's going to be on it? Yeah, I just said, if you'll just be patient and write. And look, they're good students. I'm not saying this is bad. I'm saying this is what humans do. I just happen to interface with it a lot. And they're focused on all of the wrong things. When? Is it going to be multiple choice or essay? Do I, did I just say I just finished writing the test? I don't know. Where can I sit? How long is the test going to be? I, I just, either I don't know it or I'm not telling you. But what I am telling you is if you will listen to these instructions and you will faithfully do what I tell you to do between here and there, you will not have to be, worry about it when it comes. And I hope that is thinly enough veiled, that you can understand our approach to really eschatology in general, but especially the Olivet Discourse. In this passage, Jesus has so clearly and evidently prepared us for troubling times ahead, has so given us hope and and, and joy that we might, in the middle of tragedy and trouble, still have, not only still, but it would, even, it, it would even deepen our hope in what our future will look like. That as the world, you know, goes up and down, and as there's tumult, and as there's natural disasters, there's all kinds of stuff, we could say, oh, we were told this is going to happen. If we remain faithful, there is a great reward for us. But instead, we spend most of our time arguing about timelines. And I would like, can we argue about timelines over coffee sometime? I'll totally argue about timelines with you. It sounds like fun. But before we decide on all the who, what, and where, can we receive this as Jesus intended his audience to receive it as a message of hope? There'll be consequences for not getting ready. And Jesus is coming back, and that is great news. It's the best news, or it is the worst news, and that just has to do with the state of your heart. There are consequences for not being ready. And when I say, okay, guys, tomorrow's the test, there will be somebody who, or you know what will happen is uh, students will come in, and I'll go, did you bring any note cards? And you know, the, the kid who, like, he's trying to get into... Oxford, Yale, Harvard, Stanford all at the same time and attend them all. You know, a kid's like, I want to do great. He comes in with a stack of note cards, right? He's, he's just got them all because he's written everything down. And then there'll be somebody who shows up with no note cards. And I go, oh man, this poor guy. There's really nothing at this point he could do. 
I say he because I have junior boys. <laughs> at this point, I can't, there's nothing. I did everything we could to prepare him. And at this point, no matter how worried he is, there's, there's going to be consequences. And also, there'll be distractions along the way. This is true if you're teaching high school. You go, guys, please plan now, because I know you've got three basketball games next week. Would you please prepare now? I, your parents are going to want your time, too. You're going to want to play video games. Would you please? There's going to be distractions in the world. Would you please focus? Just be faithful. Not exceptional, just faithful. And if you're faithful, again, not exceptional, just do the work. Common faithfulness. Well, man, there is great hope. You can expect a reward. It's not going to be this day of the test will not be a day of worry for you. You'll be ready. You'll be excited. And your grade will be great. Your mom's going to buy you ice cream after this, you know? And I do think that's the point of the Bible's teaching about the eschaton. A little vocab for us today. The eschaton is the event that wraps up human the human timeline having to do with the end times we would say that is the eschaton is the event eschatology is the study of that so we're told about the end times not so we can begin to formulate theories about who what why even but rather so we can know how to live our lives with an expe expectation of reward with hope without anger without fear but with hope and with joy. So before we hop straight in, there's some contextual things we probably should cover because this is like, as you read through the narrative of Luke, this really stands out. It feels different. Like we were just talking about theological discussions with Sadducees and now all of a sudden we're talking about like signs in the heavens and nations at war and stuff. And then we're just going to hop right back into Sunday school stories next week. You're going to be like, oh, this feels familiar. And if you go, wow, that, that, Chapter 21 felt like a whole different thing. You're right. That was a whole different thing. And it's important for us to be informed readers. We need to be Bible readers, but we need to be good Bible readers. So a few contextual points. First of all, we need to talk about um, what is apocalyptic uh, literature. So apocalypse. Now, if I was to say to you, I actually um, was such a, a nerd this week. I was like, got all, I had to call my daughter in Portland and be like, let me tell you about the dictionary. And fortunately, she's a nerd like me. So she wanted to talk about the dictionary. But when you look up the word apocalypse, it says something like, um, the big war at the end, or the, it's like it's dragons and whatever. It's like, like zombies are usually involved. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you think of the word apocalypse, you're thinking like the scariest video games and modern like post-apocalyptic scenes and movies and that kind of thing. But that's just because that's the way we use it. The word actually comes from a Greek word that just means to take the lid off of something. So when we talk about apocalyptic literature, we're not talking about big, scary war literature. Rather, we're talking about a particular kind of literature that reveals truth. So when we look at the revelation of John, the last book in your New Testament, that's a great name for it. It reveals something really important about Jesus. It reveals his power, his greatness, his victory. It's not just about dragons and, you know, nations at war. Although, because it's apocalyptic literature, sometimes you get dragons. 
And if you're here to tell me that stories aren't better with dragons, I don't know how to help you. Also, something about apocalyptic literature in the New Testament is that it relies very, 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 very heavily on the Old Testament. If you're a first century Jew, you would recognize this stuff because what, you, what we call our Old Testament, they just called the Bible, the Tanakh. And so when you hop into, if you'll, um, if you'll get a, a study Bible that will highlight the Old Testament references for you when you come across them in the New Testament, they'll be at a pretty even pace and you know, there's always references back, but then you'll get to apocalyptic literature and every phrase has something to do with something that happened in the Old Testament. And we come in thinking more about the future because we're like, when's the test going to be? And how do I do? And what if I'm absent? And how's it going to be? I don't want to be left behind, right? I didn't read the book. I don't know how it goes. Um, but we go, I, and we're only thinking about the future. But really, if we wanted to understand it, we'd become experts in our Old Testament. That's how we would understand what the apocalyptic literature in the New Testament is talking about. It relies heavy, heavily on Old Testament literature, on patterns, on the character of evil and the character of God outlined in the Jewish faith. It also reveals patterns. Apocalyptic literature um, reveals patterns that will continue in the future more than timelines. So instead of saying, this is going to be the thing, maybe it would be better for us to go, stuff like this is going to be in our future. And every generation of Christians have thought we were going to be the last generation of humans. Somebody's going to accidentally be right. I hope it's us. If Jesus comes before I finish, we'd all be happier. Unless you haven't given your life to Jesus. Could I encourage you right now, ignore everything I'm saying and just give your life to Jesus right now. But apocalyptic literature was never intended to be a chart and a timeline. Rather, it's explaining to you, it's revealing to you what God is like, it's revealing to you what the life of believers has been like and will be like, and many times there is this multiple fulfillment kind of, kind of piece to it where you, go, where, where you say, look, there have been wars and rumors of wars, there are wars and rumors of wars, there will be wars and rumors of wars, and this is going to, and again, instead of going, well, is this the last one or there'll be more? It would be better for us to go, what can I do to be prepared so that when I see Jesus in the clouds, I don't go, oh no, I didn't bring any note cards. But I would go, ah, oh, this is what I've expectantly been living my life for. And again, I would like to remind you that while every generation of Christians has hoped that they would be the last generation before Jesus comes, all of them except this generation are dead and they are seeing Jesus face to face right now. You will see Jesus sometime in the next hundred years. Let's live our lives that we are prepared for that meeting, whether it's us meeting him there or him coming and getting us here. Amen? So, number two in context is we need to keep our eye on the times. What time is Jesus talking about? Now, this is apocalyptic literature. So it doesn't really, it, one of the most important things to understand about apocalyptic literature is it's very Jewish. It's very Hebrew, which you are probably not. Even if your last name is a Jewish last name, even if you have deep Jewish roots, you probably grew up in a Western thinking mindset. So we think of things like, give me a date, give me a time, help me to pass the Scantron test, and I'll know I'm there. 
But that's not how Hebrew literature goes. So it was not only possible, but actually really beautiful for Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. And you can apply this. We just don't have time right now, but, but you could apply this to all kinds of apocalyptic literature, including the book of Revelation. It's very helpful that their eye, as they're writing, as they're talking, is on a lot of different times all at the same time. And that seems weird in a history book, but it doesn't seem weird as you're talking with your friends. If you get a baseball fan talking about baseball, you're going to hear about the greatest left-handed hitters from every generation all on top of each other. If you get a guitar player talking about who the best guitar players are, what it takes to make, they will not categorize by era. You're going to hear about Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jimi Hendrix, and Jack White all at the same time. Because that's kind of how we think. It's how we tell stories. So as we try to ascertain, like, what time is Jesus talking about here? Certainly he is talking, at least in part of this um, passage, he's talking about that eschaton, about the last times. We're tempted to hear Jesus talk about this stuff and immediately go set our minds on the end times, and surely that's in view. And, like, give us some credit. Like, why wouldn't we want to know that? I'm not going to relive the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Well, I care about that. Sorry for those people. That's not in my future. And so I am obviously more concerned with what's going to happen in the future. But the way the biblical writers write, and the way your Lord and Savior talked at the Olivet Discourse, was, look, if you're going to understand what's coming, you're going to have to understand what's happened. Because we need to understand the patterns of sin, exile, salvation, redemption, that these patterns will continue until we see Jesus face to face. So we also, not just the end of time, but we need to have our attention on July of 587 BC. That's when Solomon's temple was destroyed. All by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar, all of that. The book of Daniel, get that in your mind. We need, to, we need to have our attention there. Also, we need to have our mind on the second century BC when the Greek general Antiochus Epiphanes, you got to have guts. Epiphanes means like godlike. You name, his name was Antiochus IV. He was like, call me Epiphanes. I'd be like, you can now call me Grant the Magnificent Deity. <laughs> Please, Reverend Grant the Magnificent Deity. So this guy, who thought a little bit of himself, came in in the second century BC, and he set up a statue of Zeus in the rebuilt temple. And probably not only a statue of Zeus, but an icon of himself, and even had pigs sacrificed in the temple something that the prophets referred to as the abomination of desecration. Well, Jesus is going to talk about the abomination of desecration like it's something that happened in the future. So should we argue with Jesus or should we go, he wants us to know about that so we can know about this. We also have to understand the book of Daniel or at least have our eye on the book of Daniel where Daniel predicted that in the second century, the abomination of desolation would, took place, would take place. We get that language from Daniel, a phrase that Jesus echoes here, but is referring to a time in the future, and maybe more than one time in the future. 
also in the book of Daniel, where we are introduced to a person called the Son of Man. That's such a familiar phrase to us. Luke's favorite way to describe Jesus is the Son of Man. And I want you to hear how strong and messianic that is, that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. First, the, the first time we get that language is from Daniel. But guys, we've just heard about four sermons in a row from the last couple chapters where these uh, Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes come up to Jesus and go, hey, teacher, rabbi he is, but he is also the glorified son of man, strong, victorious, king of the kingdom set up by the ancient of days that is told to us in the book of Daniel. We also have to have our time just on a few decades from the time when Jesus is talking, maybe just a few years from the time when Luke is writing where the Roman general Titus will destroy the Jewish temple, Herod's temple, the big beautiful one that Jesus is teaching around um, in his earthly ministry. And a couple of years later, after not only the temple is destroyed, but the whole city of Jerusalem is razed, is completely destroyed, salted, burned, and maybe especially, instead of just thinking about the end times, we need to keep our eye on Jesus and think about that this is something that Jesus actually told humans, people, his friends, his disciples. In the time he spoke these words, the first century, around the year 30, on the Mount of Olives, as Jesus is actually saying these things, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine when we talk about eschatology, when we talk about end time stuff. We really get off in the weeds if we forget that Jesus or John, who wrote the book of Revelation, first and foremost said these things to people that they loved, intended to be helpful to the people that actually heard it. Jesus didn't, just a couple days before he go, went to the cross, say, hey, I'm going to tell you guys a bunch of stuff right now that nobody for more than 2,000 years is going to care about. No, but rather, this is supposed to be helpful to the people who are there and then too. So here's what I'm saying. This is an unveiling, a revealing of truth, but not necessarily a revealing of a timeline. So we talked about this a little bit in, in other kind of categories last week, but as we approach this, here's just how, you know, there's not, there's not prophecy, um, this kind of prophecy very often in the New Testament, so it doesn't come, uh, come from the pulpit all that often, but when we do, we can either decide, we're going to approach this from our camp and just spend our time proving other people are wrong. We're all-mill, we're pre-mill, we're post-mill, we're probably not that one. Um, we're pre-trib, we're post-trib, we're mid-trib, whatever we are. We're pan-theologians. Do you know this? Pan-theologians are the people who think, ah, it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> Look, there's some wisdom there, but the scriptures are meaningful. We don't have to, we don't have to just land there. But we, we, don't, we don't have to decide what our camp is. I mean, all the stuff I just said about having your eye on the book of Daniel and 70 AD and Babylon and Greece and Antiochus Epiphanes and the Maccabean Revolt and all this stuff, don't you go, whoa, 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 that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Let's not be arrogant. Instead, let's approach it with humility. Let's hear what Jesus actually said. And let's live faithful lives so when Jesus comes back, we're ready. 
and we live our lives with joy anticipating his return. So we can either approach this stuff from our particular camp or we can receive it as Jesus intended, like a first century Jew would, thinking about how God has worked in the past and how he will work again. We can receive the warning. There's real warning here. And when we go, I'm going to use this to argue for my theological position, we miss how dire the warning is. To live and die apart from a relationship with Jesus is not only risky, but is dangerous and and full of folly. There is real, actual danger if you are a theologian whose heart is far away from God. So we receive the warning and we also receive the instruction for those of us that go, yeah, Jesus, we're in. We love you. We're following you. Tell us what to do. Well, there's good instruction here. There's a warning that hard times are going to be a part of our experience, even for faithful believers. And, and there's instruction as a way to live in the middle of those tumultuous times. Again, I'll say this over and over, but there's not a lot of instruction on how to construct a timeline because that isn't what Jesus is doing. Rather, he's preparing his followers for trouble ahead, telling them how to respond. Last contextual point, and then I promise I'll preach this passage. The biblical context is important. Where it sits in Luke's narrative matters. Luke 19 and 20, triumphal entry, driving out the sellers who are ripping people off and keeping people outside the kingdom. My house will be a house of prayer. Jesus, who gives you authority to say this stuff? All those theological attacks coming at Jesus. And now Jesus has walked out of the city to the Mount of Olives where he from an elevated position can see the temple, the city. And so can all the people who are traveling with him. And it's, it's there after what had to be four or five days of just difficult, um, downright depressing interactions with who should have been God's people but who had wandered off into idolatry. Somebody just simply makes a comment. We don't even know. And, and also right before Jesus is about to be betrayed. I mean, this is happening right before the, the familiar events of the cross. So the occasion for the Olivet Discourse is we don't even know who said it. Luke very like obviously doesn't care who said it. Simply it says some were speaking. And they said, wow, Jesus, the temple sure is pretty. And I wonder if they were trying to encourage Jesus. You know, after like the fourth fight with the Sadducees, if they're like, hey, Jesus, at least the temple, look how great it is. How could anything that bad happen? It's all, it's all beautiful, splendid, and white, and stones, and gold plates. And it, it really, apparently, when the sun hit it, it was blinding. Like it was just this glorious, glorious structure. And so somebody said, hey, well, Jesus, look at that. Look at that. Isn't that a beautiful temple? And that causes Jesus to launch into one of the most important discourses of our faith. Because the temple worship of Judaism had failed. It was still thriving and active if you're just talking about numbers. But it had failed in its mission to be the light to the nations. Even to be a faithful witness of the law. (coughs) 
And so it wasn't going to last much longer. Jesus wants to prepare his followers for the destruction of the temple, for the destruction of Jerusalem, and for the end of the sacrificial system. And man, think how devastating that would be if you grew up a Jewish person, going to the temple, sacrificing to Yahweh with all of the customs involved that have been going on for hundreds of years. Jesus lovingly wants to prepare them for the changes that are about to happen in their culture. So this is a message about consequences, about distractions, about faithfulness, and about hope. First, let's look at consequences. Israel is on the verge of exile. We don't think about what happened at 70 AD as exile, but it's exactly what it is. And this had happened before. It had been Egypt. It had been Assyria. It had been Babylon. It had been invasion. But Israel, over the course of its history, when it became idolatrous and when God's patience had run out and and Israel had gotten to the point where it was no longer functioning as this lighthouse to the nations, well, God's prophets had come and said, turn. And when Israel didn't turn, it was exiled to Babylon. It was exiled to Assyria. Do you remember the last parable told before this of a landowner who was far away and sent servants? And the servants were rejected, and then finally the landowner sent his son. That's what we're seeing here. That prophet after prophet had come, and now it is the son of the landowner. It is the son of God standing there. One last time saying, would you turn? Or this whole thing's going down. Exile. Destruction. There are very real consequences for idolatry. You know, we think of Israel being God's special portion. Amen. We think of Israel being chosen out from among the nations way back in the time of Abraham. And we think about God's provision and calling them out of Egypt in in the Exodus. And we think about how God had provided over and over. But let's never remember, or let's let's never remember anything. Let's never forget that that never meant that God turned a blind eye towards their sin or idolatry. Rather, it always meant that because they were His, there were absolutely going to be consequences for idolatry and sin. And you know that if you have kids. There's some kid in Iowa right now not doing his homework and smoking weed. You don't care. I mean, you'd rather he wasn't. But when it's happening in your house and you go, oh, because this person's mine, because I love them so much, I'm not turning a blind eye to their sin. There might be some exile from car keys involved. So, As Jesus tells this story, it's about the destruction of the temple. Verse 6, that's very clear. Not one stone will be on top of another. The destruction of the temple must have seemed ridiculous, this big, glorious thing. What could ever happen to it? But it had happened before, twice. It happened when Nebuchadnezzar had knocked down Solomon's temple, and then it happened when Antiochus Epiphanes had come in and destroyed the rebuilt temple that we read about like in Nehemiah and Ezra. Then also, there's this other thing that's going to happen a few years after that, the destruction of Jerusalem total, not just the temple, but the whole city. 
And this is something that the people were familiar with from the history books, that Israel was God's special chosen people, but that always meant that there was accountability, that that God was willing, because he loved them so much, to send them to exile, to punish them, so that their hearts might finally turn back to him. Exile had happened before, and it's about to happen again. And that's why... Jesus speaks in the style he speaks about. He doesn't just want to say, hey, this is what's going to happen. He wants to have all kind of Old Old Testament illusions so they understand, guys, this is how God has acted. This is how God will act. Not only that, but in verse 22, we see reference to a time future. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. That will come, the verse 34 says, there's a time that will come like an un, uh, to the unprepared like a trap. Like you will be walking through the forest whistling your favorite tune, step in a trap and it'll be over. So Jesus is setting up some parallels. The destruction you've seen before, the destruction that's about to come and then this destruction that's out there at some time in the future. The Old Testament had entered the term the day of the Lord into Jewish thought. The day of the Lord was going to be a day of great victory for God and great destruction and terror for the enemies of God. And now Jesus is inserting himself into that event saying, oh, this great day of the Lord is when you're going to see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Like Daniel, like I've been talking about on this journey down to Jerusalem. That's me. I'm coming again. He is the Lord of the day of the Lord. Man, I'm not going to stop there. I'm on a roll. But, but if I just stopped there and said, guys, this is all you need to know. The day of the Lord is coming. The wrongs are going to be made right, and we are grateful for that. But it will be a day of terror for those that have not submitted. Have, if you have decided to be your own king, you still get to be your, king, your own king when the real king comes. And it will be like when you were disobeying your parents and messing up the living room and then the car came home and you went, oh no. But if you've been faithfully walking with him, it'll be a day of great celebration. There's a day of the Lord coming and Jesus is the Lord in that day of the Lord. How now should we live? So not only is this day coming, But as Jesus is looking at this time of the destruction of the temple, this time of the destruction of Jerusalem, and then this time of the day of the Lord coming after, he says, look, and these images are all kind of on top of each other a little bit, but he says, look, there's going to be distractions. I think they call that a news app. But it's not just that. There'll be family division. Is there anything more distracting to our faith than family division? than a family member who's walked away from the Lord or, or parents that have rejected you because you've come to Christ. or There'll be family rejection, Jesus says. There'll be false arrest and dragged into court. This is especially talking about the time before the Jerusalem is destroyed, but we see that unfold around the world all the time. There's never going to be a shortage of martyrs or people in prison for the sake of the gospel. 
In fact, Jesus says, this is going to be the time of your witness. Not only that, there's going to be a having to flee. Do you see Jesus go, oh, I feel so bad. Jesus really goes, I feel so bad for the pregnant ladies when this happens. Can you imagine being, if I, I'm sure we have military people in the room. Have you been pregnant and moved at the same time? That looks like the hardest thing. You should get gold medals in the Olympics for that. That looks so very difficult. But can you imagine fleeing at a moment's notice because Titus has just firebombed your city? Jesus is like, this is coming. What a distraction. Wouldn't you automatically go into self-preservation mode? Wouldn't it be easy for your eyes to get off of, oh no, Jesus said this was going to happen and get on to, not only do I have to save myself, but I probably should pick up arms too. All the way to martyrdom. Personal difficulties. There's also going to be national conflicts. For Israel, Jesus says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be people falling by the edge of the sword. Wrath. In the future, Jesus says there's going to be distress among nations, people fainting with fear and foreboding. Oh my gosh, what language? Turns out Luke could write. People trembling, fainting with fear and foreboding. Man, what if we saw the tumult, the difficulties, the tension between nations as distractions for where our eyes should really be? Guys, we've got to be like this faith of ours is, is not for sissies. Rather, we have to look at the face of political upheaval. We have to look at the face of war. We have to look at the face of disease and plague. And we have to go, but I will live for Christ and Christ alone. And I will love people in his name. And I will love my enemy. And I will lay myself down. And I will deny myself. And I will live the life that God has called me to live. And that is here I stand. And none of this is going to distract me. National, natural upheaval. Jesus says there's going to be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. The heavens will shake. The seas will roar. Every time a national disaster strikes, there are some Christians usually trying to sell a book um, who will proclaim that this disaster, this hurricane, this flood, this fire, this famine, this pestilence, this plague is a sign of the end times and i would say it sure is a sign that we need jesus to come back it sure is a sign like when we see these natural disasters are we supposed to go the end is near we should always be living with a realization that the end is near and if it takes a fire or flood to remind you then praise the lord and help those in need but they're going to be here. We're supposed to look at these natural, this natural upheaval. You know, Paul even said, man, the, the creation groans and waits for reconciliation. Like sin just didn't break us. It broke the whole thing. We're supposed to look at these things and remember that Jesus said it would happen and that our job doesn't change. Care for people. Bear witness. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. And if you get taken to jail for it, that'll be your time of witness. 
Also false theology, heretical teaching. Jesus said in the, in the time leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, there would be people saying, I'm the Messiah, follow me. He said, don't go out after them. Well, I've noticed that that didn't stop then. There will be cult leaders and snake oil salesmen. In our day, there are church movements that claim to speak with the same authority as first century apostles and Old Testament prophets, saying that their words are, is tantamount to Scripture. Jesus would say, don't follow them. Rather, you have to have such single vision on a life of following Christ that these are mere distractions that you can push to the side and go, I am on mission. Be loved, worship, follow, grow, go. That's it. That's all we do. So not only are there consequences, not only will there be distraction, but there's good rails to run on. Jesus doesn't say, so it's going to be super hard later but rather, there's all of this intermingled in all of these as he looks forward to the, tem the temple going down, to Jerusalem being destroyed, and to this future day of the Lord. There's all of this instruction on how a Christian could live. He loved us so much, he told us how to live in the middle of these times. Verse 8 says, don't be led astray by false messiahs. Man, don't be led astray. Eyes on Jesus. Verse 9 says, don't be terrified. Isn't fear the opposite of love, of faith? Isn't fear what drives us to, you know, post something nasty or tell our neighbor to get lost or whatever it might be that is unloving and not appropriate for a believer? Verse 12 says, suffering is an opportunity to bear witness. Man, we are a culture that thrives. Our economy runs on selling and lack of of discomfort. We're not going to be able to avoid it forever. And Jesus says, look, when suffering comes, this is your time to witness. Christians suffer different than people without hope. We just should. Verse 13 says, tells us to worry less about the argument, worry less about what we might say and more just learning to hear God's voice. God says, I'll give you wisdom. I'll give you the words. Verse 18 has something so profound to say about endurance. He has not left us on, a, on our own, but he will grow strength in us. Verse 28 says, straighten up. This is definitely talking about sometime in a time future. And he goes, look, when you see this stuff, Man, live expectantly. I love straighten up. I have bad posture all the time anyway. Like most of the time I preach like, well, do this, do that. I'm not reading anything. I'm just looking down. I just have terrible posture. Um, and and it, I don't know if you've noticed, this world will weigh you down. When you see tragedy, when you see evidence that the world is broken and remember that Jesus is not. Straighten up. Have some confidence. Trust Him. Trust Him. Live expectantly. Verse 34 says, watch yourself. I love it. It talks about the cares of this life. Don't get dragged away by the cares of this life. 
And don't get dragged away by dissipation and drunkenness. Dissipation is not a word I use a whole lot, so I kind of did a deep dive. It means having a headache after you drink too much. (laughs) Do you want to waste your time with a hangover or on mission? Don't get suckered away by drunkenness and don't get suckered away by the cares of this life. I know, you're broke, me too. That's the way it is. I don't know, it's brutal. Can you afford to live here? I can't, none of us can afford to live here. Let's let's all go to Iowa and buy mansions. I don't even know if that's true. (laughs) Cut that out of YouTube. There's nobody cutting anything out. But as Jesus says, the mighty day of the Lord is coming and you're going to see the Son of Man come down in clouds and it's going to be a day of vengeance and there's going to be huge consequences. So stay away from addiction and greed. So just don't let yourself be comforted by all the stuff that the world says should comfort you. When, the, when times are brutal and the world is a mess and the nations are roaring and there's hurricanes and floods and the whole thing, the most natural thing is to go, man, I, gotta, I need to check out for a minute. I need to hit an eject button. It's going to be alcohol or it's going to be drugs. Or let's be honest, it's going to be anger. There's lots of eject buttons to hit. It's going to be stuff. It's going to be pride. It's going to be being a big shot at work. Somehow, I'm going to find something that gives me comfort because the world is such a mess. I'm just going to binge watch something. I'm just going to whatever. But don't let that be your comfort. Jesus says, watch yourself. You're tough enough. Endurance is here. He'll give you strength. Stay awake, verse 36 says. Just lastly, this is also a message of hope. So there's going to be consequences. But, and there's going to be distractions. But remain faithful, Christian, because there's hope. I mean, what do you guys think? Did Jesus say all this so that we, I mean, you just read it. Carol just read it to you. I've been talking about Did Jesus say all this so we could construct a timeline and argue about it? It doesn't feel right at this point, does it? But rather, Jesus said all this so that we might have hope. Did he say all this maybe so we could see how sin and idolatry produce an endless cycle of disaster and violence and heresy? Or even better, did Jesus say all this so he could tell us that that his story is a story about a day when there will be an end to the cycle of sin and violence and heresy? Daniel saw it. Daniel saw the Ancient of Days setting up a kingdom with the Son of Man at its head. Isaiah saw it, a servant leader who would suffer, but by his stripes we would be healed. Isaiah saw a time when there would be so little need for weapons of violence that people would turn their swords into plowshares and warriors would turn into peaceful farmers. Zechariah saw it, the great day of the Lord. When the wrongs would finally be made right, God's victory would be final and complete. When evil would finally be dealt with and there might be security for God's people. When the most common things, even the bells and buckles on the horses would say holy unto the Lord. Malachi saw it. A great day when God's victory would be so complete that faithful people would leap around like a calf from its stall. 
joy. Look what Jesus promises in this chapter to give us words and wisdom when we need it. He told us in verse 18 we would be safe. He said, not a hair on your hair would perish. Verse 16, he goes, some of you will die. Verse 18, he says, not a hair on your head will perish. That probably didn't make any sense when he said it, but I bet it made sense a week later after his resurrection. His resurrection is the guarantee of your resurrection. Your faith might even cost you your life, but no part of you will perish. You'll gain your lives. You aren't going to gain your life by getting everything you want, by getting everything your way in this world. No, it's going to be through faithfulness. We will see the Son of Man. I grant the goofball that I am. You, we will see the Son of Man. What hope? What could we not put up with if we really believe that? Redemption. You are bought with the blood of Christ. We'll stand before the Son of Man. This is the reality in which we should live our lives. Sure, nations are going to roar and so will the seas. Disaster will strike. There'll be hard times. But someday we will stand in front of the great Son of Man, the great judge. We must live our lives in light of that. And that is what Jesus is preparing his friends for at the Olivet Discourse. He is our present help. And he is the mighty judge of the universe. We can anticipate strength and endurance now and the physical presence of Jesus forever. Guys, a test is coming. Get your note cards ready. <laughs> it doesn't take great, exceptional faith. It just takes faithfulness. Stop being distracted by the tumult of the world. There's heretics. They're everywhere. There's natural disasters. Give it a month. We'll have another one. There's going to be wars. There's going to be evil men that do evil things. But instead of that or addiction or distraction or greed or comfort, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand? We'll sing another song.